The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The sermon text for this morning is found in John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Hear the words of Jesus. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. At Bethlehem, our pattern is to begin each year with prayer week and So we just mark the start of each new year with a call to prayer, which Bud Burke gave last week, and a call to the Word, which I'm giving this week. And what's really interesting about that and why I'm smiling is in Bud's call to prayer, you heard a call to the Word, and in my call to the Word, you're going to hear a call to prayer. (laughs) So, um, you know, and you think, why do we do that? You know, if it's just some dead tradition, we should drop it. We should start the year in some other way. But we do it because we don't believe it's a dead tradition. But we do it believing and asking God to bless prayer week in our lives. I'm going to use words from the text that... This year we might abide in Jesus all the more as his word abides in us all the more. And as through the word we are praying all the more in this new year. So we do it in order to seek God for renewed grace in the word and prayer in our lives that we would be drawn closer to Jesus, closer to God than the year before, close, intimate, abiding. So that's why we do it. Strengthen our relationship with the Lord Jesus, that we might abide in him all the more. 
and we do it for the advancement and joy of our faith. So toward that end, let me pray that God would use this message and last week's and this prayer week when we had the prayer guide that we distributed. We, we had some extra prayer meetings. We had the, all, the evening of prayer last Friday. I wonder if it struck you that it was during prayer week that, that the football fans all over the country were called to pray on Monday night. Father in heaven, grant that, uh, that this ask for more abiding, more grace in our Bible reading, in our meditating on your word, in our feeding on you through your word, would draw us close to yourself, would strengthen our prayer life and, and, uh, and work for our joy in you all the more in this year ahead. You know, we have not because we ask not, and I do want to thank you for hearing our prayers for our financial need at the year end and how you, according to your promise, you have provided for all of our needs according to your riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So thank you. Thank you for working through us, through this people, to be generous and to meet the need that we had. So thank you. So now, meet us in this word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was verse 7 of John 15 that really, you know, I think about the image of, you know, like you step on a piece of gum and it kind of sticks with you. That's that, that verse 7 during prayer weeks of long ago kind of stuck on me. Like, and, uh, and I want it to stick on you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And you hear in it the entangling of abiding in Jesus, his word abiding in us and praying whatever we wish and it will be done for us. And I thought I'd begin this, this message with a picture. What does that look like? What does that look like in someone's life? And, and what I don't want, you know, we have heroes of the faith. Uh, Brad mentioned this in the welcome. And, you know, I suppose there is a danger in holding up heroes because you might say, well, I'll never be a hero. But that's not why we have heroes of the faith and, and heroes in life. We have heroes in order to aspire, to aspire. So I want this account of George Mueller's life to inspire you. It's a picture of what, what is abiding in Christ by his word and entangled with prayer look like. So let me tell you about George Mueller. Some of you, I'm sure, know who he is. George Mueller lived from 1805 to 1898. He was a father and an evangelist and an orphanage director. And in his autobiography, which you can get really cheap online, or free probably, 
you cannot help but notice he prayed for everything. Everything. He just lived with this conscious sense of conscious sense of dependence on Jesus for everything. Abiding in Jesus. He prayed for earthly provisions, for food to feed the children in his care. I mean, and they had empty cupboards, and he's praying. And the Lord answers, just in time for dinner. Um, he prayed for, for broken boilers that, that, uh, that were in the orphanage. He prayed for busted water mains. He prayed for spiritual needs, like faith and hope and love. And it is estimated, I wonder what bearing fruit might look like. It's estimated that through his ministry, God worked to care for an estimated 10,024 orphans. You know, I say orphans in Britain, I think of the, the movie Oliver. You know, or street kids, just loose. And he established 117 schools, educating an estimated 120,000 students, freeing many of these poor children from the cycles of poverty. A little snapshot of George Mueller. In his autobiography, on May 7th, 1841, he's 34 years old, he, he has this journal entry of a discovery that he says God gave him about his approach to Bible reading and prayer. So he's writing this in his journal at 34 about an observation that God gave him 14 years before. He's 20 when God gave him this. Here it is, quote. It has recently pleased the Lord to teach me a truth. Irrespective of human instrumentality, as far as I know, for the benefit of which I have not lost, though now more than 14 years have since passed. What's the beneficial truth or practice? I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, or how much I might glorify the Lord, or how much I might get my soul into a happy, but, but how I might get my soul into a happy state, and how my inner man might be nourished. And so, Mueller's primary motivation in the morning was strengthening his joy in the Lord, which we would say is totally glorifying to the Lord. And it wasn't his primary motivation merely to get ready for work and get ready for ministry and get ready for serving the Lord or get ready for preaching or teaching or doing our jobs. And it brought a deep integrity to his life. I'll read more. He's talking about his practice in the morning. And how it, it wasn't just about getting ready for doing stuff. I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. 
like evangelism. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world. And yet, not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended to in the right spirit. Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus, by means of the word of God, whilst meditating on it, my heart might be brought into experimental or experiential communion with the Lord. Two more paragraphs. The result I have found to be almost invariably this, that after a very few minutes, my soul has been led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer but to meditation on the word, yet it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. My inner man almost invariably is even sensibly nourished and strengthened and that by breakfast time, with rare exceptions, I am in a peaceful, if not happy, state of heart. I just think that's beautiful. You have trouble with your prayer life? Mueller says, read the Bible. And he's not just saying plow through the Bible. Like, check off my boxes, I did it. He's saying, meditate on the Bible. Stay in the text. Aiming, looking, asking God, Lord, make myself happy in you in this word. And then he says, invariably, what happens? Thank you, Jesus. Lord, help me. Turns into prayer and praise and petition. I could stop the sermon right there. That's, that's my aim. My aim is that God would give us grace to abide in Christ all the more this new year through his word, yielding prayers of praise and petition every day in the year ahead. I pray that for myself. I pray that for you. It's my aim. Well, what I want to do with this time now is uh, I just want to pray again. Let me pray. Father in heaven, make it so now we pray. Make it so. Give us the reality of verse 7. Day in and day out. In the morning, meet us in your word by communion with you as we abide and open our prayer life to you in new ways. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
just want to walk through this allegory, strike the note of abiding in Christ, and then just uh, fairly quickly just tick off the, the uh, what abiding, uh, how to abide, and the fruits of abiding that Jesus lists here. So I'm going to move fairly quickly as I get to the end. So this is an allegory. This is not a parable. Um, the context of this message of Jesus is the Last Supper, the night before he was crucified. It's the night in which he was betrayed. And you know the difference between a parable and an allegory. A parable typically has one point, and we're probably misunderstanding the parable if we break it up into you know, different pieces, like this means that and this means that. That's not what you do with a parable. You just look, you look for the main point in a parable. In an allegory, like this one, in the parable of the soils, Jesus tells us what each of the parts mean. So it's an allegory. The key components represent other things. And it's an allegory of a vineyard. Okay, what do the, the parts represent? First one. Jesus says he's the vine. The vine represents himself. It's a grapevine. And did you notice that the text said in verse 1, I am the true vine. He's distinguishing himself from another vine or other vines. I am the true vine. Why did he say that? The the image of a vineyard was used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God's chosen people, Israel. Why don't you turn to Psalm 80, and let me set it up with this, just a brief survey of God's redemption of Israel out of slavery. God took his people out of slavery in Egypt and planted them in the promised land. He cleared the land, removing the inhabitants that were there. By the way, God owns the earth. The earth is the Lord's. And he takes land and he gives it to people. And when he chooses, he moves those people out and he puts other people in there. And that's all over the, New Te- all over the Old Testament. New Testament says it in Acts 17. God sets the times and the places where people live. So that's what he's doing here. He clears out the inhabitants of the promised land. He plants his people, Israel, in the promised land. And because his people broke covenant and turned away from him, he removed them from the land that he had planted them in. And they were conquered and taken into exile, and Jerusalem was pillaged. Now, look with me at Psalm 80 for how that historical reality is reflected in the imagery of the vine and the vineyard. Verse 8, speaking of God, God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. You hear it? God brought his people into the land of promise, planted them in the land. When they turned away, verse 
12 describes how God removed them from the land. Removed them. Verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls, the city of Jerusalem, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Verse 13. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. And then comes the word of hope. This is not the end of the, of the vineyard. There is one coming to restore it. Verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So when Jesus is saying, I am the true vine, he's saying, that's me. That's me. I'm the son of man. I'm the man of God's right hand. I'm the one coming with God's favor and strength upon him to cause my people to turn to God in faith and be restored to life. I'm the true vine. What about the vine dresser? Jesus says the vine dresser is God the Father. The Father is the master gardener. Uh, In this vineyard, he does two things according to the allegory, which we would call pruning, but there's a technical distinction. Actually, there's a play on words in the original. They're very similar, but uh, he cuts off and he cleanses, we would say prunes. Um, let me read the verse. The, the ESV is good in getting the meaning here. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He cuts off. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or he cuts in order to cleanse, not remove that it may bear more fruit. So here's the father tending the garden. He's going through the garden and there's a vine, right? This is the vine, this is the grapevine and there's a branch coming out of it and it's dead. God the father cuts it off. It's the first thing he does. Second thing he does is, this is I'll tell you how I think of it. Here's the vine, here's a branch, and then on this branch, there's this, you know, sometimes there's a little plant that kind of comes, this is really hard to do with, I need three hands. There's a little thing that comes up here, or on this branch, there's a broken limb, he trims that, 
a disease. We, we have a park behind our house, and there's all this black, what's it called? Black knot. This disease all over all kinds of plants. He, the father sees black knot on this vine branch. He sees black knot growing on this, va- on this branch. Cuts it in order that it would bear more fruit. Do you see the difference? Do you feel the difference? Cuts off branches that are dead and fruitless. Prunes branches that are broken and diseased and maybe growing in a direction that they shouldn't go in order that the branch would be healthy and sanctified, cleansed, and bear much fruit. The branches are disciples, believers. And before Jesus, he has not said what the Father does with the branches that are cut off yet. It strikes me that before he does, he wants to assure them. (laughs) Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. I think, well, how are the disciples already clean? The text doesn't exactly say, but Here's how I understand it. They're already attached to the vine by the word of Christ, namely by faith. And any, any cutting, trimming work is not to cut them off. They're already cleansed. They're already attached. But any pruning that needs to be done is, is for cleansing, continued cleansing, sanctification sanctifying cleansing. I think about the description of Jesus, what he does for the church in Ephesians 5, 26. He he washes his church with the water of his word. In John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So who wants to assure the disciples before he speaks this word of judgment? Already you are clean because, the, because of the word I've spoken to you. And then verse 5, he says, okay, guys, you are the branches. I'm the vine. Whoa, wait a minute. Okay. And it's, it's, uh, it's striking to me that Judas has gone out to betray Jesus already. So I'm thinking, the disciples don't know what's up. But when they look back on the allegory, they're going to go, okay. That was Judas. It was cut off. He assured us they were cleansed, were in him. You are already clean. Because of the word I've spoken to you. And then he gets to brothers and sisters, your task is to abide in me. Abide in me. Verse 4 Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. This is just a description of a 
could stick with the metaphor, a healthy living plant, you know, branches don't jump off and start living fruitful lives apart from the, the vine. Healthy Christian life. Jesus is the vine. We live healthy, fruitful, happy lives, abiding, remaining, living in Jesus. The word abiding is just very interesting. You know, it's, a, it's, it's a word about like where you live. You, know, you abide in your house. Uh, live in Je- remain in Jesus. Stay attached to him. Live there in Jesus. Jesus says, abide in me. And then verse 6, just to complete the flow here. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And I cannot help but think they reflect on that with Judas' Judas's participation among the twelve. I wonder how how you receive warnings in Scripture. And I just want to say one thing, maybe two things. You know, this is a warning in Scripture. Abide. If you don't abide, you'll be cut off and thrown in the fire. The abiding by faith in Jesus with His Word abiding in us means that we, we don't dismiss the warnings of the Bible, like, well, it's not for me, it's not for that. You know, you know why? That's, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get confidence of abiding in Jesus by saying, I don't believe what he says. <laughs> to your own danger. No, no, no. The, the way to receive the warnings of Scripture is to believe them and to believe the promises of God's keeping. It's, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you're not going to be cut off. No one can snatch you off of my <laughs> vine. No one can snatch you off of the Father's vine. Trust me. Continue to believe in me. Rest in me. So I hope you take the warnings of Scripture like that serious and cause for believing in Jesus, believing in his word, and remaining in him. That's the way to take him. Not to just kick him off as if they're nothing. Because if they were nothing, Jesus wouldn't have spoken them to us and to the disciples. But they're means to remain. Motivation to remain in Jesus. What does it mean to remain in Jesus? Um, this is the part I'll do fairly quickly. As I said, live in him. What, is it, what does that look like? Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This abiding in Jesus means abiding in the love of Jesus, living in the love of Jesus, consciously aware of the love of Jesus, receiving the love of Jesus, you know, like sap coming through the branches, receiving his love and being strengthened by his, his love and, and, uh, and just this beautiful dynamic of the, 
This is the Father's love coming through Jesus into us and we love Jesus back and we love the Father back and it's a beautiful life that he depicts. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments. So we abide in Jesus and abide in his love by keeping his father's commandments, excuse me, keeping his commandments just like he keeps his father's commandments. By believing his word. We abide in Jesus by believing his word, trusting his word, treasuring him through his word. Well, what results from that? It ought not be surprising in the allegory. Verse 5b, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Abide in the vine, his life flowing through us, we're bearing fruit. And then comes verse 7, this remarkable promise, dynamic. If you abide in me and my words abiding you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So, you might wonder, you know, why, does, why do people in this church praise scripture so much? <laughs> it's verse seven. <laughs> There'd be a lot of other reasons, but it's verse seven. Uh, it's no, no less than verse seven. Well, because Jesus taught us to pray that way, that his word would abide in us and, and, and we would ask whatever we wish, his word shaping our prayers as we pray back his word to God. And lo and behold, when we, when we pray according to his word, he answers. Surprise, surprise. It's this beautiful dynamic. You know, struggle with your prayer life? Meditate on the Bible. Struggle with your prayer life? Memorize the Bible. And thereby, prayer and the word abide in Jesus all the more in living, conscious fellowship, communion with Jesus. Two results I want to mention. The one I've mentioned already. Actually, three results. The bearing of the fruit, but then here, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Abiding word, prayer, bearing much fruit, proving that we're disciples, and thereby glorifying God. And one more, which is... Another evidence in the Bible why we talk about joy. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. (laughs) So let me sew it up with this. We, the elders of Bethlehem, and actually we're calling each other to the word and prayer this year 
Lord, give us grace and perseverance and, and diligence and intentionality in spending time in your word and prayer to abide in you there by means of word and prayer to abide in Jesus. And the motivation that you have to hear is this motivation that Jesus speaks right here. Do this for your joy. For your joy, like Mueller, today. And your joy forever. Father in heaven, grant this joy motivation in all of our life of faith, I pray. But in particular, may we pick up your word and go to prayer with an expectancy of experiencing joy in you through your word and as we seek you in prayer through Christ. Pray that you would do it. May we be strong in faith, branches that prove to be disciples of Jesus and bear much fruit to your glory and for our joy, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.